I thank you that you are here with us in the person of your spirit and you long to teach us. You long us, you long for us to know you more intimately. You long for us to walk with you closer, to hear your heartbeat, to be able to be in tuned with your spirit, walk in your spirit, keep in step with your spirit. And God, this is the journey that, that is our privilege to walk with our God that created us with purpose. And I ask you, Lord, as, as we learn about your spirit this evening, I, I pray give us keener insight and understanding into your word. And beyond that, Lord, an ability to walk this out, to live it, for this to be a, a daily moment-by-moment experience with our awesome God that has rescued us for this purpose that the Spirit has for us, that we're going to look at. And I just ask you, God, would you teach us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think if a, a truth in our day is that we have, as a church, throughout church history, we have done a fairly decent job of understanding the Father, and understanding the Son. The, the Father is the one who uh, plans, and it is the Son who actually uh, accomplishes salvation, and as we're going to look at, the Holy Spirit is the one who, who carries this out in our day-to-day lives, even today. And so I would say that we have a fairly decent understanding of the Father, fairly decent understanding of the Son, but the church historically has lacked a clear understanding of the Holy Spirit, and as one person put it, the Holy Ghost is no ghost. Okay, how many of you grew up watching Casper and the Friendly Ghost? Okay, I, I mean, that was, that was allowed in my house. We did that. Uh, uh, growing up, it was allowed in my house. It's not a show that we watch uh, for my present family, but... It, we, we get this impression that the Holy Ghost, which is more King James speak, um, we, we just get this sense of an impersonal ghost uh, or spirit, rather than a father and a son. That we, we kind of have, you know, they're flesh and blood, right? I mean, I have a father and I have a son and they're flesh and blood and they're relational. And so we, there's a tendency to be able to relate to a father and to a son image. But to a ghost or spirit, not so much so. I want to see that change tonight for us. If for us we need that changed. I would say again that there has been a dearth in a a clear teaching of the spirit. And this relationship that we have with the father and with the son. But we need with the spirit. And so... We're going to be looking at the work of the Spirit or the mission of the Spirit. And in all honesty, this is this would be a class in and of itself. It truly would. And we're covering it in, in two teachings. So bear with me as I kind of cut to the chase with some of this stuff. I do so not because I really want to, but in, in all fairness to our time, I need to. And so for that reason, I will. Um, as we... Look at the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to have you uh, insert, kind of maybe as an introduction, really it should be letter A, um, is who is the Spirit? 
And then we, as I say, we understand the Father, the Son, but who is the Spirit? And I want to touch on three things, and I'm sure that there's more. This is not an exhaustive theological class. This is basic biblical theology, okay? Three things that we need to know about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, especially as viewed in the Old Testament, was many times viewed simply as the power of God or as would be referenced to the Shekinah glory of God. When the temple in 1 Kings was dedicated to the Lord, there was a cloud that settled uh, on and in the temple, so much so that the priests hit the deck, could not minister before the Lord, before the temple. Um, and this was when Solomon was dedicating the temple to the Lord. They called this the Shekinah glory of God, and they would view it as the Holy Spirit, that it would, the, the Holy Spirit was more the creative power of God. This would be a very Jewish mindset. There was a God, and then there was the work or the power of God that they would call the Spirit. Um, we need to realize that that is a very lim- limited understanding because the Holy Spirit is not just the power of God. First of all, we need to understand, number one, the Holy Spirit is God. So under who is the Holy Spirit, number one, put he is God. If we were to turn to Acts 5, verses 3 to 4, we would find that Ananias and Sapphira have given uh, an offering of, of money to the church. They had property, they sold it, but it says that they kept some back for themselves, which was perfectly fine. Their problem, though, was they said, this is all of it. In other words, we sold the property, we got this much money, and we're giving all of it to the Lord. And it was an issue of pride is what it it really was. But when they were asked, is this all of it, they said, yes, it is. And Peter said, uh, excuse me, we're looking at chapter 5, and for some reason I'm turned to chapter 6. Peter said, Ananias, how is it? This is verse three. How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Now, if you were to turn, down, if you were to go down to verse four at the very end, it says, "You have not lied to men, but to the Holy Spirit, but to God." Okay. So we need to understand that lying to the Holy Spirit was lying to God. The Holy Spirit is God. Uh, Matthew twenty eight nineteen, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, right? And and the Holy Spirit. It is what's commonly called a Trinitarian formula, if you want to use that term. But we don't just baptize in the Father or baptize in the name of Jesus, but we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three. We also see that... Uh, Trinitarian formula, if you will, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians uh, 16. But clear enough, Matthew 28, 19, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now again, I said that the Spirit is not simply the power of God. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians 2, 22. Ephesians 2, 22. And in Ephesians 2.22, it says, In him, 
you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. God lives by his spirit. So the spirit of God dwells in us. And this verse tells us that that is God dwelling in you. So if the spirit dwells in you and that's a promise, then then that is God dwelling in you. We are therefore individually the temple of God. His spirit lives in us. But also corporately, we are the temple of God. And the Spirit of God dwells among us, in us, and therefore among us. So let, let's also realize that, as a metaphor, a temple of God, that's individual as a Christian, but also corporately. And so the Spirit of God dwells in us, and Scripture says that that is God dwelling in you. Um, and... and Again, I want to move away from this concept of the spirit being this nebulous power force of God that, okay, maybe we could call him God, but he's kind of this intangible spirit being that ends up being impersonal. And so, number two, we need to realize that the Holy Spirit is not just an it. The Holy Spirit is not just an entity. The Holy Spirit is a person. Okay? The Holy Spirit is a person. I want you to go with me to John fifteen thirteen. I wrote down the wrong verse. Uh, 16, 13. Sixteen thirteen says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. And the, the Greek word ekenos, which is usually translated, um, if it were neuter ekenon, it would be that, but it is, even though the word pneuma is neuter, it's interesting that ekenos is masculine. So that it's, and it's translated he. Not just it or that. And we find that a masculine pronoun is used with regard to the Holy Spirit. Again, even though spirit or Holy Spirit is neuter, and it's just neuter in the Greek. John is trying to tell us that the spirit is not an it, but the spirit is a he. It is a him. And therefore, we must understand it not as this entity or this spirit being that's nebulous, a power that is a non-person, but it is, in fact, a person. 
And so, you know, theologians kind of grapple with this. Is he a person? Because the word person is not used. Is it a persona? What we need to realize is that they have used this term person to help us understand that the father is a he, not an it, and he is personal. And so for that reason, they choose the word person. And if you want to say persona, and as theologians really dig into the fine-tuning of what word we should use, but person is a very good term to use. It is not a term so much that's found in Scripture and applying to uh, the Trinity, but it is certainly understood. God is not an it. God is a he. He is in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and therefore they are personal. We, we have relationships with persons. We are to have a relationship with the Spirit. Again, because the Spirit is not just some it. The Spirit is a person. Acts 13.2. In Acts 13.2, Paul and Barnabas are getting, to, getting ready to go off on their, this missions trip. And they do so at the command of the Holy Spirit. Leaders are gathered together. They're worshiping. They're fasting. They're praying. And it says in Matthew, excuse me, Acts 13.2, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, Barnabas and Paul and Saul, whose name was changed to Paul, for the work to which I have called them. And so... And it doesn't refer to itself as me. Me is personal, a personal pronoun. And so we need to realize that the Spirit is a personal being, a person that we can have a relationship with. Um, And then lastly, and, and I mentioned this earlier, he implements the Father's plans that the son accomplished. Mm-hmm. Let me just read that one more time. Number three, under who is the Holy Spirit. He implements the father's plans that the son accomplished. Specifically plans concerning salvation and this day-to-day walking out of our salvation. Because realize that we were saved we are in the process of being saved and experiencing our salvation. And we will ultimately one day be completely saved. That is rescued from our sins so that sin is no longer a part of our life and no longer a part of heaven itself. And so salvation needs to be viewed as past, present, and future. It's the Holy Spirit who enables us in this. And so what the Father planned, the Son accomplished, and the Holy Spirit is implementing And that's going to be important because now we need to understand the Holy Spirit has a mission. Even as Jesus was sent by the Father with a mission, and what was that mission, church? Save the world. Save the world via his death on the cross. He had to live a perfect life. We don't want to leave that out. To become that perfect lamb. In which case, to become the perfect sacrifice. That he would rise then from the dead, conquering death, tasting death and conquering it, and being able to sit at the right hand of the Father. And therefore, he does not just simply sit on a throne because he is the Son, but he has accomplished 
salvation. We worship him not just because he is God, but because of what he has accomplished for us. The father could have had a plan, I suppose. I mean, it, I suppose it's hypothetical. It's never happened. But God being God could do this, I guess, in which he secured salvation some other way. But he, in, in, in his mind, because of who he is, I suppose this is how he had to do it. But Jesus accomplished salvation for us. He, 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 is, he is not just Lord because he's God, but he is Lord because he accomplished salvation. He earned it, if you will, and thereby is seated at the right hand of the Father, not just because of who he is, but what he has accomplished for us. Now, it is the work or the mission of the Spirit to take salvation, the gospel, this work that was accomplished for us, this purchasing, and now apply it to the lost sinner to regenerate him, etc., etc. So let's now move on to this next thing. It's in your book, it's letter A. It's that the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. Uh, John 16, 8. You can turn there if you'd like. And in John 16, 8, he says, When he comes, that is the Holy Spirit, the Comforter or Counselor, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. And he goes on to elaborate a little bit more on sin, righteousness, and judgment. But this is the work of the Holy Spirit, and, he, and so he convicts us. And we would have to say that even as uh, Stephen was preaching to the Jews in Acts 7, he said to them, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. And so we would have to be able to say that it is certainly possible for man to resist this work of the Holy Spirit. Saul actually at that moment was resisting the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Because Stephen's testimony was, you, all of you, you all do always resist the Holy Spirit. And, and not just that generation, but generations long past, since the time of Moses, seeing that's the context. You resist the Holy Spirit. So the world, even though, even though the Spirit of God brings conviction, they can resist that. They can harden their hearts towards it. Now, praise God, because of his inevitable grace... You remember that term that I used, not irresistible grace, but inevitable grace. Um, he, he, he does pursue us, and he does eventually, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he justified. But remember, that is not just one-sided, though it sounds like it. He chose us in him. Now, we looked at that several weeks ago. So I, I never want to exclude this concept of faith with election, but election does not, excuse me, faith does not drive the bus here. The focus there in Ephesians 1 is election, but it is not done separate and excluded from faith. So theologians wrestle with this constantly. Many believe that we've been elect unto faith, and the scripture never says that. It says we've been chosen, he chose us in him. So these run parallel. Uh, but faith, the Arminian view, we know cannot be true in that faith, God did not see us believing and based on that, choose us. There's no scripture that 
that supports that concept. All right? And so the Spirit of God then convicts us and he convicts us. And in Paul's case, inevitably, that conviction of the Holy Spirit won out. God's grace is poured out in Saul's life. And he is knocked to the ground. And of course, he sees this bright light. And he sees the person of Jesus, though his companions only see the light. He hears audible Aramaic words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? His companions only hear a sound. And he is converted at that moment. And the conviction of the Spirit of God that day broke through like rays through rain clouds that we recently have experienced here in Orlando. It rained a lot last night, didn't it? And But in the morning, the rays broke through those clouds and in Saul's case brought salvation. The conviction of the Spirit of God took root. Saul's heart was opened. And this was the work of the Spirit of God, we we're told. The... The Spirit of God, one of his missions is to convict the sinner. Uh, Number two, regeneration. In John 3, 3, it says this. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus who comes to him at night. Nicodemus is kind of hedging what he really wants to get at. And so Jesus just cuts to the chase, kind of breaks through this, this smoke and mirror, so to speak, and just says, hey, Nicodemus, here's what you need to know. I tell you the truth, or verily, verily, I say unto you, King James says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And then it says later on in, in verse... Five, it says, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. We must be born of the Spirit. That being born of the Spirit is parallel with being born again. And being born again, or being born of God, which would be a synonym, is also synonymous with regeneration. Regeneration means to generate again, to give birth again. We could use the term rebirth, if you will. And, or it can also be understood to be born from above. God himself, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he makes us a new creation. The old is past, the new is come. I want you to think about that. When you were born again, you became a new creation. A new creation. Think about the, the implications of this. When, when a child is born into the world, number one, a totally different environment. They move from the amniotic fluid of their mother's womb now into this world. For the first time, they breathe air. For the first time, they see things. That, at least, I, I don't remember seeing anything way back then when I was little. But uh, Anyway, when I was born, I'm sure I could, I, I, you know, for the first time, I'm seeing things. You can, they can feel and taste and their world is totally different. For someone who is a new creation and the old is past, the new has come, there is, this, there is a serious spiritual change in their lives. This transformation, someone who is, who is caught 
and enslaved to sin and blinded by Second Corinthians four says that were that they were act, that the world was actually blinded by the God of this age, so they could not see or understand the gospel. So they're blinded, but now the eyes wide open. What a what an awesome uh, metaphor as far as Paul, the scales of his eyes falling, and he's seeing now that his eyes are now open. But as we are born again or regenerated. We see things now from God's perspective, or, or we should. We have that capability. And so the more that we get from the word of God, he wants to remake our minds and renew them and not any longer be conformed to the image of this world. So there is this dynamic change that happens when we are regenerated or born again by the Spirit. And we begin this process of our minds being renewed and we see God's creation and his plans worked out in our lives from a very different perspective. And, and perspective, you've had heard me use that word a lot in my preaching. Perspective is so, so important. It's so easy because being conformed to the patterns of this world, Romans 12, 2, part of that is taking on the perspective of the world. And that's easy to adopt. But freedom, greater freedom in Christ is taking on his perspective. So when we're born again, uh, we become truly new creations in Christ. And the old is gone and the new has come. We're also told that the Holy Spirit seals the believer. This is letter C. Ephesians 1.13, it's also found in 1 Corinthians 1, but I want to focus on Ephesians 1.13, in Ephesians 1.13, it says, Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. Now, I, I'm not going to reiterate what I said concerning the possibility of apostasy. I'm not tackling that issue tonight. I want to focus on this sealing that the Holy Spirit does for us. Number one, we realize that it happens after we believe. Believing then opens the door to the Holy Spirit not only regenerating us, but it also opens the door for the Holy Spirit to seal us. I, I want us to realize that this word seal uh, is not a synonym for like locked in. You know, like a Ziploc bag, it seals, or Tupperware supposedly seals. Okay, this is not what the Holy Spirit's job is. That's not what the word seal means. Let me give you an example of how it's used in the New Testament in a specific situation. Um, when Jesus was crucified and he was buried in the tomb, the, the scribes and the Pharisees were very concerned. They said this, this deceiver said that he in three days would rise from the dead. And we want to make sure that... Uh, that Someone does, that his disciples don't come and steal his body and then propagate this lie that somehow he was raised from the dead. So let's go ahead and post a guard, which would be for Roman, for, for Roman soldiers, at the tomb and seal the tomb. Does that mean they took out their uh, liquid nails and kind of sealed up this, this tomb there? And after that thing hardened, forget it. No way. Uh, no, no, no liquid nails, but rather they put the seal of the governor on that, which basically said, if you touch this, you die. This is his, this is his property. 
and it's sealed with his signature, if you will, his marking. And so you, you've probably seen movies. Oh, personally, I like the uh, Scarlet Pimpernel. But he has this ring. He turns it the other way. You see the Scarlet Pimpernel. The Pimpernel's a flower. And he drips the wax, and then he puts his ring, signet ring, seal on that. And that basically means this is from the Scarlet Pimpernel and is only from the Scarlet Pimpernel or a king. He would seal it with his, with his signet ring. That was kind of like a signature, if you will. But if, you, if, if it was a letter that was sealed and that seal was broken, then that would mean what? Tampered with, yeah, okay. Could mean that. But it was tampered with. And that would be a very serious offense. We have, in Revelation 3, it talks about us having the name of God on us. We have been sealed with this name of God. And this is a mark of ownership. That mark of ownership that John talks about is this that Paul talks about concerning the seal of the Holy Spirit. It, it is not the name of God like YHWH that's marked on our forehead or on our wrist or some other place, uh, but it is the name of God that is imparted to us by the Spirit. So it is a sign of God's ownership on us. You, having believed, were marked in him, him with the seal of God's ownership on your life. You now belong to him. You don't belong to the devil. You don't belong to the world system. You are his. Jesus, by his d death on the cross, made uh, that purchasing available at your conversion. The purchasing was applied and you were bought. You were redeemed at that moment. And you belong to him. So by faith or having believed, now you belong to him. And, and Paul tells us here in Ephesians 1.13, that happens in this metaphor that he uses, the seal of the Holy Spirit. Again, we're not talking liquid nails. We're talking about ownership here. This is God's stamp of approval. This is God's uh, fingerprints on us. We belong. His DNA transferred to us, we belong to him. Okay? All right. Now, we have talked about the, um, the sanctifying work of this, uh, of this or, or sanctification, and here, I just want to, so I want to reiterate that the Spirit's mission or job, if you will, is to sanctify the believer. And, and of course, this is past, present, and future. We've talked about this. But this process of sanctification that we are in, it is the Holy Spirit working in us. Yes, he continues to convict us of sin, bring us to repentance, turning away from our sin and purifying us. This is a work of the Spirit. It is done by faith. It is not done by human effort. Isn't that interesting? In, in Galatians 3, it says, Having begun with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? following the law, somehow trying to find your righteousness in the things that you do so that by that you are now pleasing to God or more pleasing to God or now you're a super Christian. And, and this concept is alien to, the, to God's word. We began with the spirit and it is the spirit as we surrender to him 
So do, do you see that? That is so key. That is the heart and the essence of faith. It is surrender to him. And I would have to say that it's not just a passive, but a very active humbling before him, but it is allowing him access and, and transforming of our hearts. Um, so even though it is by faith that we are sanctified, I want us to see this because sometimes when we use the faith, the word faith and it gets a little overworked, we, we can kind of lose that the, the grit of what faith is. Faith is commitment to and it's surrender to. Like I pledge my allegiance to the most high king. Okay, that is faith. And that is how God not only rescued us and regenerated us, but now he sanctifies us as we surrender to him. Okay? It is not a matter of us doing more so that he sanctifies us more, but it is more, it is more an issue of us giving up more and surrendering to him more. And as a result, the spirit of God, by faith, purifies and sanctifies us. Okay? Now, I want to turn to something that is very debated in the body of Christ. And this has to do with the operation of the Spirit when Scripture, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and turn there, please, if you would, baptizes us. And I realize that the King James Version reads this quite differently. So, does anybody here have a King James Version? No, nobody? I'm sorry, did you, you have King James? Okay, so go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And I, I want us to look at this, uh, this passage because it's going to help lead us into um, our last section that I really want to spend quite a bit of time in. Um, so if, uh, if we are there... Then, Sandra, could you read from the King James Version, 1 Corinthians 12, 13? Do your best, thanks. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Okay. And that's the King James? That's New King James. New King James. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, do you have the old one, brother? Okay, maybe maybe if, maybe if you could have just cut us out of the F. Thank you. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. Okay, so we were baptized, and how does it read it? Right after we were baptized. Very beginning. Oh, sorry. We were baptized. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Okay. All right. Into one body. Then my mistake then. Um, it's been a while, I guess, since I've read the, the King James. But there is a, a common translation of this that, that says we were baptized in one spirit into one body. Um, the NIV says, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. And what I'm saying is that people have understood this to mean, for we were all baptized in one spirit into one body. And if we were to understand 
Because the Greek word en or en is used here for the word by. And that's usually translated in or with. It is the same phrase when Jesus says, or excuse me, when John the Baptist says that uh, there is one coming after me who's greater than I, and he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. So people have said, well, see, this, this reading tends to be a little bit awkward that we were baptized in one spirit into one body. Doesn't that feel awkward? Do you recognize the awkwardness of that phrasing? We were baptized in one spirit into one body. And so the, the saying or, or the, the teaching goes, for that reason and that reason alone, uh, translators have gotten a hold of this verse and they have changed this word N to not to not be in, which would be its more literal translation, but the word by. And so we were baptized by one spirit into one body. So what these people then say is because it's literally translated baptized in one spirit into one body, this is the baptism in the Holy Spirit that John promised, that Jesus in Acts 1-5 promised, quoting John the Baptist, and that happened on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, okay? So this baptism with the Spirit, therefore, since we all drink of one Spirit, this baptism in the Spirit happens to all believers, and it therefore must happen, and only can happen, at conversion. Now, do you understand that argument? That this baptism in the Spirit, that the book of Acts elaborates greatly on, and we're going to look at that next, must be understood to be the, whole, the gift of the Spirit coming into the believer, as it did not in the Old Testament, to convert them, regenerate them, do all of his work in them. And that always happens at conversion. They would then say, and we're going to look at this again a little bit in just a moment, they would then say that the book of Acts is transitional. And by labeling the book of Acts as transitional, whatever happened, whatever the Spirit of God did, whatever God did in the book of Acts, we should be very careful in applying to our lives today because a lot of stuff happened in the book of Acts that just doesn't happen today because it was a transitional book. It was a transitional time. And I'm going to come back to that reasoning. And, and I'm going to take issue with this um, because I do not view the book of Acts that way and I do not view this verse from 1 Corinthians 12, 13 that way. Now, even though the word N is used baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that is the phrase that John the Baptist used and that Jesus quoted to his disciples in Acts 1-5 and equated it with, you will be empowered by the Holy Spirit when you receive, you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And that happened on the day of Pentecost. And that they would then say, it happens at conversion. I'm going to take issue with that here. Because this is... Not that. 
This is a different construction than it is that John the Baptist used and that Jesus used in Acts 1-5 quoting John the Baptist. And here's why. If we were to look at this in the Greek, we would not only see the word N, we would also see in the next phrase into one body, we would see the word ace, which is in, translated into or unto. So we are baptized in the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, so it would seem in reading it literally. But the verb that's used here, and so put under, why is it that we should, un- here's, here's what I want you to do. Why is it that we should understand this phrase that we were baptized by the Holy Spirit into one body and it would be improper actually to translate it we're baptized in one spirit into one body. Why is this the case? Because what, what Paul is saying here is different than what we see in the book of Acts. It is different than that baptism in the Holy Spirit for this reason. That's, that's what I'm saying here. Number one, the word N and ace, or in and into, are used here. Number two, the verb baptized is in what's called the middle passive voice. In other words, it's something that happens to me. I'm not baptizing, okay? That's the active voice. And you know this by taking grammar, Latin, Spanish, whatever. The, the, the passive voice is when it happens to you. So the baptism happens to me. When we were baptized, that's passive. So do you understand when I'm saying passive? I don't want to speak over your head. So for these two reasons, those two words, in and ace, and the middle passive verb that's used here, Greek grammarians say this verse fits what's called the instrumental case. It is not, it's not translated by the Holy Spirit because we just don't like the awkwardness of this translation. We were baptized in one spirit into one body. We translate it, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. We translate it by, not in, because this is the instrumental case. Now, I'm, I'm making a big deal about this because for many people, this one verse... This one verse is there, this hinge between the book of Acts and the epistles which talk about this work of the Holy Spirit in the believer. And this work of the Holy Spirit in the believer happens at conversion. And we know that in the book of Acts that even though it didn't always happen at conversion, we would say because it was a transitional time period, But for us today, we're not in that transitional time period. Now it always happens at conversion. Okay? So let me kind of recap here. Um, Greek grammarians would say, because of these various things that I pointed out, this is the instrumental case. Instrumental means that the Spirit is the instrument. The Spirit is the one that does the baptizing. Therefore, we were all baptized by one spirit. The spirit is the instrument that God uses to baptize you at conversion into the body of Christ. So let's back up. One is, John says, one is coming after me greater than I, 
And he will baptize you in the Spirit. Who does the baptizing in that case? Jesus. Jesus does. Jesus is the baptizer. What does he baptize us into or in? The Holy Spirit. Because of the instrumental case here, who is the baptizer in 1 Corinthians 12, 13? Who does the baptizing? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does, not Jesus. The Holy Spirit does the baptizing. That's the understanding of the instrumental case. So this is not the baptism in the Spirit that the book of Acts talks about. This is a baptism that the Spirit does to you at conversion and he places you into the body of Christ. That is, that would also be tantamount to our adoption, if you will, okay? But he is immersing us, the concept of baptism, he's immersing us into the body of Christ. Now again, I'm making a big deal about this because this one verse is the hinge, and if we, if we understand this verse in the instrumental case that the Spirit does the baptizing, we cannot say that we cannot say that every Christian drinks of the Spirit at conversion, like this verse would lead us to believe, because this verse speaks of something different. This this. This verse does not speak of the baptism in the spirit that Jesus does. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to go ahead and look at the book of Acts, and I want us to see what is this baptism in the spirit. So turn the page, if you will. Or I guess it's a, a new page. For me, it's a, it's a new page. But uh, it's, it's entitled... That one of the, the missions of the Spirit is empowers the believer for ministry. And how many of you did the homework here and actually wrote down synonyms? Just show your, raise your hand. Okay. Um, I'm sorry? I didn't write it down, but I read it. Okay. Um, in Acts 1, 5, and 8... What is the term that's used for this empowerment of the Spirit? What phrase is used? I've already actually quoted it. Baptized with. Baptized with or baptized in the Spirit. Okay. Okay, and then comes on you. So understand that the word the Holy Spirit comes on you is a synonym for <coughs> baptize in the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? It's going to be important that we see these synonyms. All right? Um, for some reason, I don't know why I missed this. <laughs> I guess because that was my base. But Acts 2.4, in Acts 2.4, it doesn't use the term baptized in the Holy Spirit. But it's obviously the baptism in the Spirit because that's what Jesus promised. Not many days from now, you will be baptized in the Spirit. And lo and behold, the Spirit came, but it uses a different phrase. It doesn't say that they were baptized in the Spirit. What does it say? They were all filled with the Spirit. Okay, so that's another synonym. Filled with the Spirit. We would have to say that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is tantamount to being filled with the Spirit. Let's look at Acts chapter 8, verse 16. In Acts 8, 16, 
what synonyms are used for baptism with the Spirit? Uh, okay, that's NASB, right? Okay, fallen upon, which in the, in the NIV it says come upon, which would be what we read in, in Acts 1.8, but the Holy Spirit will fall on you. There's another one that's used there. And I want to throw in verse 15 as well, not just 16, but 15, verse 15. Anybody want to... It, it's the phrase receive. Yes. They received the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? Now, because this word, this phrase, receive the Holy Spirit, is used by Luke, many have made the common mistake of taking what Paul says in like Romans 8, if anyone does not have the Holy Spirit, he does not belong to Christ. Okay? That Paul's reception of the Spirit that's used in his letters is used differently than how Luke uses it. Luke uses all of these phrases, baptized with the Holy Spirit, is a synonym for filled with the Spirit, which is a synonym for the Holy Spirit fell upon them, which is a synonym for they received the Holy Spirit. All of these, we would have to conclude, there, there's, this is, I'm not just guessing here. This is truly, these phrases are used to substitute for one another. Okay, so they therefore all must refer to the same event, being baptized in the Spirit. Okay, um, in Acts nine seventeen, what phrase is used there? We don't see baptized in the Holy Spirit. What do we see? Filled with the Holy Spirit, just like in Acts two. So they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, how about Acts ten forty five? Poured out. Okay. So, so far we have baptized in or with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is poured out or fell up, uh, excuse me, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them, and then the Holy Spirit came upon them, which the NASB translate fell upon. So, these are five phrases that are used interchangeably. Okay? Now that's going to be important because many would like us to believe that the baptism with the Holy Spirit and the filling with the Holy Spirit are two different things. And if we're going to stick with the book of Acts, Luke uses them to refer to the same event. Now, people would say, yes, I believe that the baptism in the Spirit always happens at conversion, but this filling can happen, and, and it's just, it happens because we are, we're filled with, um, with more of the, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And so the sanctifying work of the Spirit is synonymous with being filled with the Spirit. Now, I'm not going to deny that in Ephesians 5.18, Paul uses the phrase, don't be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The context of that is character. It's not power. It's character. We need to realize this. Paul uses this phrase, being filled with the Spirit, differently than Luke does in the book of Acts. Because being filled with the Spirit is the empowering work of the Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Acts 2, when they were filled with the Spirit, 
They were empowered by the Spirit to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So the book of Acts is not focused on this work of the Spirit concerning salvation. He's focused on the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? At least that is Luke's focus. Okay? So... We have talked about the regenerating work of the Spirit, the convicting work of the Spirit, the, um, the sealing of the Spirit, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. We, uh, we also have down that the Spirit comforts and counsels us. Uh, and now we come to this next work of the Spirit. He empowers us. And my point is this, and we're going to see this demonstrated in just a moment, but I'm going to share with you my conclusion. In the book of Acts, we, it, it, we need to realize that the Holy Spirit's empowerment does not always happen at conversion. The Holy Spirit's empowerment, being baptized with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon them. The Spirit uh, was poured out upon them. They received the Spirit. All of these meaning the same thing. That is the empowering work of the Spirit. And that did not always happen right at conversion. Now, before I get into those five passages, there are the, I want to address this issue that people suppose that the book of Acts is transitional. And they say, if the book of Acts is transitional, that is transitioning between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, Belief in Jesus for salvation. That this work of the Spirit for a couple of reasons that apparently the book of Acts does not tell us and we have to guess at, the Holy Spirit just is not given right at conversion. So they are Old Testament believers for a while and then they suddenly become New Testament believers when the Spirit comes upon them. And that spirit coming upon them does not happen four out of five times at conversion. Now, do you understand? And I'm saying this because this is an extremely prevalent view in our day today. They many times will call this the apostolic age. I'm fine with the term apostolic age, but how are we going to characterize it? Are we going to characterize it by concluding, therefore, the book of Acts is transitional? That certain gifts of the Spirit are not in operation today? They were during the apostolic age, but just not today. Uh, we're going to look at that next week. But here are, some, here are some insights that people have made concerning the book of Acts that lead them to believe that it's transitional. And I want to speak to those. Because my contention is that the book of Acts is not transitional. That what we see in the book of Acts then happens today. It's not just a parenthesis in the church age, in the very beginning of the church age. Number one, they would say, well, if you were to step back, you would have to acknowledge that some Jews still adhered to the law. They still made some sacrifices. They're Christian Jews. Still made some sacrifices. James encourages Paul to fulfill his vows 
and to make a sacrifice. Um, okay, there was that transition away from the law. Number two, they would say that in the beginning, the Gentiles were not immediately evangelized. That appears transitional. I'm not going to argue with that. The church is learning. And they're responding to the, the grace of God being poured out upon them. And the Jewish mindset is take the gospel to the Jews. And now the spirit of God is leading them from Acts 10 on that, no, the gospel is to go to the ends of the earth. Isn't that what Acts 1.8 said? Isn't that what Jesus said should happen? Not to the ends of the earth, just for Jews. And so in Acts 10, of course, we have Peter with the sheet coming down and rise and kill these unclean animals and eat, and, and, and he says, never, never. And then he is called to go to a Gentile's home, which for a Jew would be unclean, and you remember the story now. The Holy Spirit falls upon Cornelius after Paul preaches the gospel, and the gospel begins to spread among Gentiles, and they would say, see, that's transitional. Well, let me just say this, that I, I'm not going to argue that the church was not in transition, the question, though, is, is God in transition? Is the Spirit of God, which is the, the person of God that now applies or implements salvation, the, the, the salvation that Christ accomplished, is this transitional? Is this work of the Spirit transitional? Because that is what's being said, and so far... All we see is that the church is in transition, but certainly not God. Then they would say, but wait a second, there were 12 apostles, and Paul was one born out of due season, so he's going to be included in that, and we don't have the 12 apostles today. I would say, hang on a second, we do have apostles today. We're going to look at that next week. We do have apostles, but the 12 apostles, granted, they are in a separate category. They are. And, and we need to understand this, church. There will not be another Peter who was entrusted by Christ with the gospel and he had to secure its truth. And so God used these 12 men to proclaim this undiluted gospel and it eventually was written down. But by who? Either by apostles or but by those under the supervision of apostles. Otherwise, we would have to say that scripture can be written today, which is what Mormons believe. That is what they say happened in the 1800s with Joseph Smith. He wrote scripture. But the canon is close. So as, as, as passionate followers of Jesus Christ, we have to say that the canon is closed. We do have to say that there is something special about those 12. But that doesn't tell me that the book of Acts is transitional. God had some men being mortal. They lived for a while and... The gospel was proclaimed through their lips and then eventually written down so we did not need them. But that's just the proclamation of the gospel. We're talking, about, when we say the book of Acts is transitional, that the plan of God's salvation and how he works in people is transitional. And I'm going to state this. There is not a single verse in all of Acts that teaches this. It is an assumption on our part because when people look at the book of Acts and they see something like in Acts chapter 8, in Acts 8, we see the people believe in Jesus, they are baptized, 
But then word is sent back to Jerusalem. Peter and John hear it. They then travel to Samaria where Philip's been preaching and people have been getting saved. They truly believe in the Spirit. Then Peter and John lay their hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. They did not receive the Holy Spirit, the empowering work of the Spirit at conversion. And people would say, well, see, that's transitional. It happened like that in that time period, but it doesn't happen to today. And, and we're going to go through these passages in just a moment. But let's understand this, that the reason why we need to understand that the book of Acts is not transitional, because by transitional, we're not talking about man, we're not talking about apostles, we are talking about God's implementation of the plan of salvation. By the Spirit. So do you understand? this is the work of the Spirit. He comes in and he regenerates and he seals and he empowers. This is not something that is transitional in the book of Acts. Actually, what does Acts 2.16 say? Quoting from the book of Joel, it says, In the last days. When, when did those last days begin? According to his sermon, that day, on the day of Pentecost, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all men, and they will prophesy, dream dreams, see visions, etc. Even the servants, men and women, young and old. It doesn't say, I will pour out my spirit in a transitional way, and then finally when John the Apostle dies, finally I'm going to kind of settle into my groove. I'm being a little facetious here, sorry. I'm going to settle into my groove, and now the Spirit will operate as my intention is throughout the rest of the church. There's actually nowhere in the book of Acts that would imply this. Everywhere in the book of Acts that we read... There is one separation between the old and the new. When the Spirit comes, that's it. So let me walk you through. If there is a transition, I did this Saturday night, if there is a transition of the plan of God's plan of salvation, it starts at the cross, moves through his resurrection, to his ascension, to his session or seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, 50 days. If there is a transition in the saving plan of God, it is in those 50 days. And the book of Acts, the, the, everywhere you, you read about the Spirit, any sermons, and I'm going to just throw this out there to you, if they talk about God's plan of salvation and at work, they talk about Pentecost being the end of God's transitional plan, if I can phrase it that way. It does not continue on through the book of Acts until the last apostle. There's no implication or indication that the book of Acts opens us up to this idea. It is only us, and I mentioned those four things, it's only us taking those four things and saying, therefore, God's plan of salvation, man following the law and slowly moving away and maybe understanding more of the grace of God or getting, getting rid of the law, that's man's transition, not God's transition. So again, um, you could look at um, Acts 
God, uh, God overlooked sin in the past, but now everyone must repent. When? After John dies? Or is it at Pentecost? The plan of God has been fully implemented. It would have to be at, the, at Pentecost. The plan of God is fully... See, all of the book of Acts focuses on the outpouring of the Spirit, and it does not give us this sense of transition. So you could look at Acts 2.32. The Spirit's poured out in fulfillment. It's almost as if the Spirit's outpouring is a culmination of the ages. Um, Acts 3.24. The prophets foretold these days... Right then and there, in Acts 3, just a few days after Pentecost, the prophets were told about these days. These days are the last days. Not the last days minus this transitional period. Now, again, I am focusing on this because we need to realize as we go through the book of Acts, we can't pull out the transitional card. It's not fair. The book of Acts doesn't even allow us to do that. There's, there's nothing in it that would lead me to say it must be transitional except this sense of awkwardness in which there's this delay. And so here's what I'm going to propose to you. We need to realize that that delay was not just given in a transitional time. It is intentional. It is part of God's understanding of this process that we are in from conversion through sanctification to the time we we meet Jesus face to face, okay? Do you have a question, Scott? Yeah, just in Acts 1-5, when Jesus is talking to the uh, apostles just before, sorry, the disciples just before he ascended, um, he says that John baptized the Father, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The transitional thing is kind of like a question they're asking. They're saying, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, it's not for you to 